0: then you've come to the right place. There are so many exciting opportunities in this dynamic sector, and I'm looking forward to pulling back the curtain and sharing them with you. Welcome back to the Commercial Property Investors Podcast. This is where we aim to give you the knowledge and confidence to move from residential property investment into commercial property investment. And I'm your host, Jerry Alexander. How do you get the best valuation for your CMO? How does valuation work for CMO or commercial multiple occupancy buildings? It's a question I've been asked increasingly. Over the years I've been asked it, but more so recently. So today I'm going to talk through some of the mythology or mythology, some would say, behind valuation techniques for surveyors and what you can do to influence it. But before I start that, I want to tell you a story. Years ago, I was buying a property and i agreed a price with the seller and the seller's agent. It took ages as usual, of course, but it was finally time to get a valuation for the funding. And I decided not to tell the surveyor the price we'd agreed, despite his pleas. To see what they would come back with, I'd kind of thought through the previous experience of getting a building valued, that actually I'm not going to tell them how much I'm going to get or how much I'm going to buy this for. I want them to give me what they think is the value. I was given a valuation on this particular building of 1 to 1.1 million. But then I made a mistake. After they gave me that, I told them the figure that I was actually buying it for and then it was 320,000 within 48 hours they'd revise their valuation right back down to 350k blaming some non-consequential reason for the adjustment that process taught me a few things but in particular by all means seek professional opinion but remember at the end of the day they go home and you're left with a baby healthy or not And these things are always subjective, and there is mythology behind working out um, prices. But it's a bit like stockbrokers giving you advice on the latest individual stocks you should invest in. They seem so knowledgeable and skilled, you feel comfortable taking their advice. But when the stocks go to hell in a basket, you're left with a hole in your finances. They simply get up the following day and advise some other inexperienced investor who's just trying to get ahead. The point of telling you this is it's not black and white. And as scientific as valuation calculations can become, it's all subjective. And in the end, it comes down to what someone is willing to pay to buy your property. I mean, over the years, a number of people have asked me, how does the licence model work in terms of valuations, particularly if the space is let on a short-term basis to multiple clients? I'm going to cover that in this episode, but if you prefer... Single-let properties listen in too. A lot of the things I will discuss will also affect some of your own decisions and thoughts on single-let valuations as well. Now before I dive in, anecdotally, there are two schools of thoughts over this. One is the value of a commercial property is heavily tied into the covenant, i.e. the tenant. And that is in terms of their reliability, i.e. Are they a good pair, well-funded or a good run, well-run business plus the length of the remaining agreement or lease. The second school of thought, though, is that multiple occupants in the same space give you a different kind of security in that if one business goes bust or leaves in that scenario, then 85, maybe 95% of your income is still intact. And as a commercial property owner, I've experienced both a large single occupant leaving and one or two smaller occupants in multi-let properties leaving. And I can tell you, my preference is always the latter. Especially right now, when you've no idea who's going bust next. Large single lets can give you a feeling of security and comfort, but when things go wrong, it can go wrong in a big way, because 100% of your income can stop overnight. Very well-known and love brands are going into administration and leaving landlords with debt, and a vacant building overnight. Which would you rather? Of course, it's not all doom and gloom. And if you're tuning in for that type of chat, then you've come to the wrong place. We always need to be looking for the opportunity whilst remaining pragmatic. Now, I know I'm going to have a few people, dare I say professionals, screaming at me as we go through this, saying, that's that's wrong, that's not the way it works. Well, I feel for you. Apologies if you feel angry or offended, but here's the thing. I'm not pretending to be a severe or a valuation expert. All I can share is my experiences, and that's all I intend to do on this podcast, or indeed other people's experiences if we've got interviewees on. But it's up to all of you, the actual investors, to do your own homework. Hopefully, what I talk about in this episode will give you a little more insight into what to ask for, and what to expect. And most importantly, how you can influence it. So, there's two aspects I'm going to cover. Firstly, how are commercial buildings valued by professionals? Or at least, what are the guidelines they have to work to? And secondly, what are some of the tactics you can use to position your property to achieve best value? So let's talk about valuation techniques. Now, the list is fairly long, but if I just kind of summarise them into a few different headings here. One is the sales approach. So that's looking at sales of other comparable buildings, and that's often used in residential, isn't it? You, you have a two-bedroom terraced house, there's 15 on one side and 15 on the other side, and they've all sold for 190,000. What's the value of the one that you're trying to sell going to be? Probably around about 190,000. So it's looking at comparisons to other sales, the sales approach. Second is the income approach. Which is much more akin to commercial not so much residential where either the gross value for single lets or the net income or EBITDA sometimes for multi-let is or a multiple is applied to that and sometimes that's called like the investment or more traditional method of, of valuing and you really what you're trying to do is strip out any service charges if there are any and looking at the the income and applying some sort of multiple. Another method is the discounted cash flow method. Um, but it takes um, it, it takes into account a more uh, or more explicitly takes into account the actual future income and potential exit value for the property at the end. It's not really applicable to our type of investments. I think it's really more for institutional method of valuation and for properties that might have a specific use for a, for a specific tenant. Another method is the residual method. And this is more about development potential of a site where assessment of current income is not really possible or it's not really the best way of looking at the way the site is going to end up. Again, it's not something that I'm involved in too much because most of the time we're looking at a purchase value of the existing asset, the existing income, and what can we get it to in terms of splitting up and producing more income rather than a full redevelopment perhaps into housing or something else. The cost approach is another one and that is really if you're getting a valuation of commercial that's often where the bank or the finance companies ask look from an insurance company point of view if this is to be rebuilt what's it going to cost? So that's another method. Often though that method if you're talking about second hand buildings will come out with a figure too high for what it is that you are actually doing and it'll sit in the the report from an insurance point of view. Um, vacant possession is, is is not really a method of valuation per se, but more of a figure, again, required as a, as a base level for um, borrowings or sometimes to do with insurance. But basically, if this building is going to be vacant, there's no income, what's it actually worth at that level? And so it takes account of no income no um, strategy or, or things that you've done internally to actually make it produce better income. Because if it's not producing the income, because all the tenants moved out, what's it going to be worth? And that's what vacant or VP um, valuation is based on. And then the last one often asked for the banks, or well, the last one I'm going to talk about anyway, is fire sale. And this is where the bank will ask, okay, while you're valuing this, Mr. Severe, if this had to be sold in 180 days, what is the value then? What are we likely to achieve if we are a motivated seller? Because we've had to take repossession and we need to get shifted. So that's um, kind of the last valuation that I'm going to talk about. But for me it seems that just as it is in residential, comparable evidence has the biggest influencing factor on our types of investments. And, you know, if you couple that with the income approach, which is really what we're trying to do, is generate income, those are really the things we need to concentrate on. And according to the RICS, or the Royal Institute of Chartered Surveyors, here's some of the text about comparable. So they say, ideally, comparable evidence should be comprehensive, so there should be several comparables, rather than just maybe a single transaction somewhere else. They should be very similar, Or, if possible, identical to the one being valued. Great if you've got terraced houses. Not so good if you've got a 50-unit industrial building next to single lets. It should be compared to something recent or representative of the market on the date of valuation. The result of an arm's length transaction in the market, i.e. not something that's been skewed by intercompany selling. It's verifiable. Something you can definitely... um, Proves happened, consistent with local market practice and the result of underlying demand, i.e. comparable transactions have been have taken place with enough potential bidders to create an active market, again, just so the price isn't skewed. Comparable evidence underpins the valuation of almost all traded assets, provided the above criteria are met. It should provide an accurate indication of value. So this is from the Royal Institute of Chartered Surveyors. And I have to say, I did, and you'll find that on their website, I did chuckle to myself though when I read the following on the RICS website. Real estate markets, and this is following what I've just read, are not fully transparent. Oh, Information on transactions is often not publicly available, and even when it is available, it may be out of date, lacking in detail or inaccurate. This situation is encountered worldwide but transactional evidence is particularly difficult to obtain in developing markets. Ha! No kidding, Sherlock. (laughs) We often have discussed this on the podcast. So even the professionals agree this market is not clear and is opaque. But you can see why it's difficult for valuers to get an accurate picture of a market price, so we can feel a little bit sympathetic to them on that score. But at the risk of repeating myself over and over again, this anomaly is one of the best things about this market. It creates opportunity. So let's move on to the, the big one here, the multiple factor, right? The problem with all of the various sort of scientific processes that valuers use, and they seem to get more and more sophisticated to get to a figure is that in the end, they're all subject to multiple. And that's really subjective. What is a willing buyer prepared to pay for an income, or potential income, at a specific time? That is not determined by a model. It's determined by willing buyers, willing sellers, and of course supply and demand. Market sentiment, and more likely with the types of purchases that you and I uh, might be making as private investors, local market conditions will ultimately affect the value through the multiple or, the acceptable yield by a purchaser. In other words, I'm trying to make this thing simple, right? What is the flipping ROI? What is the return on investment that willing people are willing to accept? And that, of course, changes all the time. So even though you can work out the income or potential income and all these things, the multiplier that you apply to that is really subjective. Now, to be fair, with single lets, there are lots of other factors that will subtly affect the value of view, not just the multiple. For example, what is the current rental income and what is it in comparison to other similar properties and is there room for it to move up? That is affected, of course, by the regularity of rent reviews, if indeed there are any, or as they like to say, asset management opportunities to bring the rent in line with market value or market rent. If there is an opportunity for this and it can be seen when the value is looking at, that might be factored in. For instance, not long ago, we bought a large single-let property and the value recognized that the rental income was below market rate. So the actual value was slightly higher than it maybe would have been based on the income and the actual vacant possession value was almost the same as the current value even though there was a good tenant and a long lease and that was kind of a recognition that the property would re at a higher rate if it actually became vacant and another factor on single lets is an assessment on the risk which is again based around the tenant themselves. The better the tenant is deemed to be the lower the risk therefore the higher the value adjustment and of course the lower the expected yield. In other words that is why a building in a primary location with a long lease and a large corporate such as a bank will achieve a yield of maybe as low as 4 or 5% because investors see it as really low risk. So that's where the multiple is actually one of the big factors. And those multiples will be changed at the moment depending on where you're investing, where the property is, how the market is in that particular part of the world. So, the second part of this is about what strategies can you actually employ to, to try and influence this, okay? So, here's a few of the things that we've we've done over the years. And there's f- five strategies, really. One of those is, um, if you've got multiple tenants, and that's a problem, right? Then, why don't you put one company into the building? What do I mean by that? Well, I'm talking about an opco-propco model, and that is where you have a company that is operating the building, so it's the operational uh, business, and a company that owns the building. And the operating company could, and you don't need to take a sledgehammer to crack a nut if you're only doing one building, but if you're intending to do this as a bit of a career, then you might want to consider this as an option. You have an operating company that effectively either A, takes on a head lease, or B, a management contract, which is what we tend to do to keep tax down Um, and that splitting of the operations and the head lease means that you may find the surveyor or the value will apply their multiple to the lease value without affecting um, or bringing in other factors about multiple occupancy if that's a problem that they have. I haven't got time to go fully into the tax side of that, but basically we we tend to put in management contracts rather than head leases because it mitigates the need for building taxes. Um, And let's think about it. We're all in the business of space, right? We all provide space. So, for example, um, hotels and other industries that use space, they basically rent a room, right? But by the night... They, they can also be valued in different ways and they often use a prop code, op code to strengthen those underlying values. So it's a kind of a similar market. We obviously hope to have space let out for more than one night. So um, it's not as extreme as a hotel, but nevertheless, they often use that model. So I hope I've explained that well enough for you to get an idea. The second one, though, is get your project revalued when it's near phase three of development, if you can. I've talked about the three phases before, but this is basically when you've got your occupancy up well, you've optimised the building well, and it gives you some evidence or the value or evidence of stable income. So I would say that for a CMO investment that you're running with licences rather than leases, and there is a podcast there, I can't remember the number of it, but check back about the differences between licences and leases. But if you're doing one of those investments and you want to flip it, you might need to run it for about three years to get good traction and accounting proof to maximise your value. So you might have to think about the time frame on that. So the third thing is search for comparisons all the time. So back to the the, um, valuation agent's job. Often what they'll do is they'll go out, they'll use that comparison method, that sales method, to look to see what other buildings have sold for, to try and work out what the multiple would be to apply to your income. So it's kind of mixing those two uh, methodologies together. And you need to try and track all this. So if you know about off-market deals, or you know about agents that have done deals, or other property owners that have done deals, keep logs of the details, right? You never know when that information is going to come in handy because when you approach a valuer, and we'll go into that in a bit, but when you when you appoint a valuer, wouldn't it be great to give them all those comparables instead of them having to go out to the market, you give them the steer because you've witnessed other deals that have gone on? And I'll, I'll come back to that later on, but it's a good strategy and it's something that you need to kind of just build up as you go along and you're hearing about other deals. The fourth thing is if you're really keen to optimize your offering, try and get your position um, as best as you can, then try and fit as much of your income into a rental figure. So what do I mean by that? Well, if you've got a commercial multiple let and you have things like um, broadband or meeting room use and these things, if you're really keen on getting your rent as high as possible, then what you might want to do is put more inclusive things in that rent. So you might say, well, actually, the rent for this office might be £300 a month, but actually I'm going to charge 350 because it's going to include two hours meeting room use and it's going to include internet, for instance. We, what we do is we'll charge those things separately. Meeting room use will be depend on how much you use it. That's, you know, if you use it for an hour, you get charged for an hour. If you use it for a week, you get charged for a week. But it is treated more as a service charge and then broadband we also treat separately but if you really want to keep your rental figure up then a way of doing that is including those in that in that fee different schools of thought on that one the next one would be research and pick good valuers so when you um, decide you're going to buy a building and let's say you are using bank finance the bank will not want you to instruct a, a valuer on your own, before they're involved. Because what will happen is they'll look at it and say, well, actually, this value has worked on your behalf and we want the value to act on our behalf. So when you get to the stage where you want to look at raising the finance, get the bank to instruct the valuation. But what they'll do is they will select from their, or they will send the valuation request or fee request out to several Valuers are on their panel. So if they have Three four five six valuers on the panel the bank may say to you Well, is there any particular ones you want to send it to or they may just send it out to them come back to you and say Here's all the fee notes or the um, quote should I say for this valuation Which one do you want to go with well you might go on best price? Yeah, fair enough You might look at it and say well actually I'm going to pick this guy because he's 1200 pounds instead of 2000. I mean they can vary quite a lot But equally, if you've done a bit of research and you've spoken to these valuers, find out which ones understand the model, because it's just going to make the whole process easier. And like I said at the start, nothing's black and white, I'm afraid. It is shades of grey. You have to go out there and do these things and work out which valuers understand my model better. And there's some banks that understand this model better. It's not that clear, I'm afraid. So... Let's just move on from those five things, right? In my experience, I'm going to tell you a little bit about multiples. My experience of multiples, not a severe experience, maybe not even your experience, but in my experience, sales are usually, and this is sales, not values, sales are usually a multiple of around about nine or ten. But some invaluers in our industry don't understand that. And the RICS will need to change their guidance at some point about... Um, more flexible offerings because more and more traditional landlords are moving into this type of offering. They're being forced, some of them willing, some of them not. However, before you run off multiplying everything you look at by 10, (laughs) remember, just because the returns could be so much higher with CMO, you might reach a ceiling. CMO projects can really provide a really, really good income. But there is a ceiling, a little bit like HMO. There's a ceiling to the value. So let's just say you buy a building that is next to two or three other commercial buildings. Those those units are producing, I don't know, thirty thousand pounds a year single LETS. So the value might say, well they might be worth around about three hundred grand in this area. And your building's achieving 60, 70, 80,000, maybe even 100,000 because you're doing a multi-let and you are providing customers really good value so they're willing to pay a lot more for it. Now, does that mean that building's now worth 10 times 100,000, a million pounds next to these three others that are 300,000? You might have reached a ceiling. It might be those will peg it back. And I know I say that it's so much to do with income, and it is. But it will get to a point where the valuer says, I can't value this at a million quid because the others are 300,000. So there is a bit of a law of diminishing returns. There will be a ceiling, but I can tell you that ceiling is far higher than residential ceilings. And there are inconsistencies as well, though. For instance, on, on one occasion, we had a multiple of seven applied by a valuer. And during the discussions, he felt that was as high as he could possibly go, right? But he was just using other methods and in hindsight, okay, we maybe you should have used a different value because he just couldn't quite grasp our model. But at the end of the day though, I know the multiple applied on sales, right? Because I've seen or been involved in quite a lot and regularly the factor is 10. Now that is when a sale is completed. So if you're looking to develop a property into fully functioning CMO and then sell it, you're going to get what the market is willing to pay, not what the surveyor tells you it's worth. So, bear that in mind, okay? So, let me just go in that statement a little bit more. I have been asked by valuers and banks even over the years about client purchases in most areas of our market here in Scotland. and And I will get a call and we'll discuss a building that's one of their clients is looking to purchase. And don't get me wrong, I'm not seen as some guru or something. And I don't think for a second I am. They're just asking for my opinion or a sounding board, if you will, to check kind of their own conclusions and where they've come to. But I can tell you, a multiple of 10 is very, very common. Of course, it might not be in your market. And as I said at the start, I'm only telling you my experience. But you need to learn to ask the right questions of the right people to find the evidence, because that will help back up these valuations. And it goes out saying, I've been involved in quite a number of deals over the years, either directly myself or from the sidelines, where I can see that multiple of 10, but most of those assets were reasonably mature. And if the multiple 10 was applied to the building, right, with an average occupancy of say 70%, then the multiple of 10 is applied to that number. So think about that. If you found a building, right, and it's not well occupied at the moment, and you're doing your calculations of an exit value based on 100% occupancy, you need to know you can get that 100% occupancy, but there is value in that. So buildings that are underperforming may still get a multiple of 10, but only on the income, right? And it won't be as good as it could be. So it's really important to make sure you've lifted occupancy levels higher and sustain them for a good period of time to maximise your value once you've taken over. And that's how you can add value to these properties, right? I mean, we've bought buildings where the occupancy is not good and the multiples effectively apply to the income-producing part. The rest of the building's been almost for free. But if you figure figured out a way to increase the rental income, income by filling that void, you will affect your value. By the way, for those of you who've been listening to this podcast for a wee while, you will know that is pretty much our model in a nutshell. It's about taking on those buildings where the value has been attributed to the income which is low and increasing the income to a much higher level through occupancy. Then you can get your multiple, whatever multiple it is the market's applying on the higher income. So in summary, don't get stuck in residential thinking where the strategies often buy refurb rent and then refinance to get your money out into a nice little lump in your bank account right I've got my 20 grand back out or 100 grand whatever it is and then you're going to pop it into the next deal and try and recycle and pull it out again and I, and I understand that's how that's how I used to think about residential right that's how you do it but there's lots of fiddling around and multiple banks to deal with and in commercial, right, we've used one main bank really. I mean we have used other finance, but in general we one main bank and we have a commercial loan backed up by security over the portfolio rather than lots of individual borrowings. And that has pros and cons, of course, but that's how we've been able to fund, bank fund a hundred percent of purchase and refurb costs in some of our projects. Now that we're doing more private finance, some of those do sit outside of that main pool. But what it means is it's a different way of thinking. You don't have to buy, refurb, rent, refinance, pull your money out, recycle, go and do it again. What you're doing is you're buying, refurbing, renting, increasing the value, using it as leverage within the current mechanism to then buy the next one. You're not having to necessarily go and structure up another whole load of another whole deal and take the money out. So going back to the valuation. If your strategy is to buy, hold and add more, then at the end of the day, who actually cares how high the valuation is? if it's high enough to finance the next deal without any further borrowings? Basically, does the valuation get what you need? So sometimes the valuation, for us, has come back lower than I anticipated, as I said, to be fair, not very often. But I did choose the wrong value on that occasion, and the property may have been operating, not operating for long enough to have a good enough track record, which is the third point I'd made earlier on. However, who cares? If the valuation is high enough to move on and get the next deal, it's only your ego that's going to be upset. Remember, your overall objective And stick to achieving that no matter what emotional strings are pulling you. If somebody comes back and gives you a lower valuation, right? Yes, it can be painful. But if it still means you can move on, then there's no point arguing. Just do it if you're holding. If you're trying to sell stuff, I appreciate that's different. But again, even as I said on that, the amount somebody's willing to pay is completely different, often completely different than the amount the value will actually put on the property because it's about a willing buyer and a willing seller. So, I hope that's helped. Thanks for listening. We have a great podcast interview lined up for next week with an industry colleague based over in Manhattan. We're going to be talking about North American market, the rent-to-rent model, WeWork and global trends affecting your very own local market. Don't miss it. Subscribe now by opening your podcast app that's right in front of you and clicking the subscribe button. And if you've enjoyed this particular episode and you think it will help some of your investing buddies, please share on social media so we can spread the word and help improve the show. Hope you've enjoyed this episode. Catch up with you next time.